to humans, the podcast where we explore our relationship with the planet, the ways we're changing it, and the solutions that hold promise for a sustainable future. I'm your host, Serena Simons, and I'm excited to welcome you to today's episode. Our guest today is an expert in natural resources management, a woman who's been on the front lines of one of the most crucial environmental issues facing us today. She's a problem solver, a policymaker, but above all, an advocate for our planet's most precious resource, water. Laura Briefer, the director of Salt Lake City Public Utilities, has been working tirelessly to address the water crisis in Utah. She's been an integral figure in water policy for over two decades and has seen firsthand how the environment is shifting right in front of us. And she's one of the many stakeholders involved in preventing the disappearance of Great Salt Lake, a natural wonder that once stretched across nearly a quarter of the state of Utah has been shrinking at an alarming rate. Through Laura's eyes, we'll explore what's happening to the Great Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, why it matters, and most importantly, what is being done about it. We're thrilled to have her on this episode of the Earth to Humans podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Earth to Humans podcast. Um, I am joined by my teammates, Hannah Mulvaney, Matt Podolsky, and myself, Serena Simons. We're the people behind Earth to Humans, and I uh, just want to check in with you guys. How's life going these days? He's going to go first. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a okay. roaring start. <laughs> Um, there wasn't an awkward silence enough at the start, so I thought I'd just add one there. <laughs> um, I'll go first then. I'm good. I'm just about to go on annual leave, um, so I haven't been, I haven't had any time off for a really long time, um, and I've been planning this big adventure. Um, so I'm super excited today because I leave like basically just after. Um, just after we have our chat, mm-hmm. um, and I am in Flores in indonesia right now um and we're doing a big motorbike overland trip around the island going to lots of like traditional villages um going climbing up volcanoes um going to some beautiful beaches and waterfalls and i'm like kind of woke up this morning like (laughs) so like basically you're telling me you're super excited to be here working uh and to be here with us <laughs> um, because all of that pales in comparison to being among friends talking about the environment, right? <laughs> oh well, no, it's uh, it's inspiration, inspiration for my trip. 
<laughs> oh, well, I look forward to lots of photos, um, you know, just selfishly so I can live vicariously through you. Anyway, <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. Matt, what have you been doing? Yeah, nothing, nothing really that exciting planned here, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, Summer break is just about here for my son Rowan, so um, yeah, we've got you know some camping um, in our near future for sure. And the weather's awesome. nice and beautiful, so uh, I've I've actually been getting my garden planted this this weekend. Oh, same. Mine's just starting. It's kind of pitiful because nice. there's still snow on the ground in some parts. Oh but... yeah. I've thrown seeds down. I'm watching the birds like eat all the seeds that I just threw down, and you know it's looking like a really, really strong year for my garden. <laughs> but that's awesome. I'm glad that like we're finally starting to you and I at least are finally starting to feel like it's summer. I know we talk about this every every episode, but it really does finally feel like I don't know. My mental health is a lot better because the sun's out more. And animals are out yeah. more, and that makes a big difference. For sure. Anyway, <laughs> so um, I'm usually the MC for these, so when it's my episode, you guys are going to have to ask me questions, man. Oh, we have to like prompt you about the episode. Okay, yeah. Well, Serena, tell us about the episode. <laughs> I mean, I can prompt myself. <laughs> I will gladly do that, Matt. Uh, so the episode um, is Laura Briefer. She is the director of Salt Lake City Department of Public Utilities. Um, but long story short, that title just means that she's in charge of a lot of people's drinking water um, for Salt Lake City. I think it's upwards of 350,000 people um, that she manages for her area of Salt Lake City. Um, but kind of in charge of figuring out, you know, how to deal with their water crisis that they're currently faced with. Um, Salt Lake City was recently in the news the last several months, um, basically for the fact that it's dropped to um, really dangerously low levels. And with the drought that they've been experiencing for the last four years, um, it's only been exacerbated. Um, and so the outlook for Salt Lake City... Um, not just for drinking water for humans, but it's a an incredibly important migratory stopover for birds. Um, it's a saline lake, so um, there's lots of brine shrimp and things in the lake that are um, good food for birds migrating across the world. So it's like an international issue too. Um, and with a you know a lake bed that is slowly revealing itself due to climate change, um, lake beds carry lots of heavy metals and. Um, that can be aerosolized into dust and can be really toxic for humans. And so um, we did an episode on Earth to Humans last year called When Water Becomes Dust. Um, and that was interviewing the filmmakers behind Manzanar Diverted about basically this exact, exact issue and all of these like conglomerated issues, but in a much smaller community where the lake actually did disappear and what happened with that. And so, you know, I really wanted to talk to Laura about the implications for that. Like Salt Lake City is a huge metropolitan area with lots of people. Um, and so if we lose that lake, not only ecologically, but the human impact just seems insurmountable. So um, yeah, we I think we had a pretty candid discussion um, about 
the issues that she thinks are manageable, some of the issues that she thinks, um, you know, are, are kind of a little worrisome to her. I even asked her kind of point blank, like, do you think people should keep moving to Salt Lake City? Like, where would you rate Salt Lake City and the Great Salt Lake in terms of like 10 being red danger, you know, zero being everything's fine. And she kind of, you know, I don't want to give away too much in the episode here, but, um, you know, she gave a, an answer that was, you know, hopeful, but with caveats, you know what I mean? And then my final thought is just that we've experienced a lot of moisture in the last uh, several months. So this winter has been a really wet winter and a wet year for a lot of us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're out of the woods as far as drought. And this one wet year isn't going to solve, you know, a five, six, seven year old drought in some cases. And um, she doesn't want people to get complacent with that feeling that, you know, everything's good now. So yeah, that kind of summarized the episode. I thought it was a great conversation. Um, and I'm excited for folks to listen to it and let us know what they think. Yeah, what I found really interesting about when I was kind of doing a bit of research after listening to the episode was that exactly what you've just said about um, people being quite complacent about there being one good year, just the press have jumped on that so much. And it's like, oh, like everything's kind of going to be okay. Like there's been this like huge snowpack year. Um, and so that's such a valid concern. Like I can understand, I can imagine that she's kind of sat on her desk looking at those stories when they come out like, no, yeah, it's like, really bad press. Yeah, totally. Um, I think mm. as people read those, they really do. They get complacent and then they, they're also fatigued by the conversation. Yeah, it's a really tough job that she's in. And I told her in the episode, like, I don't envy your job. It sounds really complicated. Lots of stakeholders in a world where we're just increasingly having access to less and less water so we have disaster fatigue right and it's mm-hmm. like it, it 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 this is such a huge enormous issue especially for folks who live in salt lake city or anybody who lives in the surrounding region and it's like you need to convey the seriousness of that to the public so that they will accept solutions when they're like dramatic like you need to cut mm-hmm. your water usage very significantly and in order mm-hmm. to agree to do that you need to understand the severity of the issue but like mm-hmm. we're just being bombarded by like disaster after disaster after disaster mm-hmm. and like talking about climate change and how devastating that's going to be and everything and obviously that's intertwined with all of this but like it's a part of it but yeah it's like how, i don't know how do you how do you get through to people to like get them to understand the scale of lifestyle change that has to happen yeah. you know yeah okay so i just want to go ahead and get started with a brief introduction of you let us know who you are what you do where you are mm-hmm. um and yeah we'll go from there okay uh, yeah, so my name is Lara Briefer, and I am the director for Salt Lake City's Department of Public Utilities. Uh, we provide drinking water to about 365,000 people along uh, the Wasatch Front in Salt Lake County, Utah. Um, that includes Salt Lake City, which is the capital city, uh, plus some neighboring communities just to the south of us. Um, we also are the sanitary sewer provider for Salt Lake City as well as the stormwater and flood control provider. And as such, 
we work with, we manage water through um, the Great Salt Lake watershed from the tops of the mountains to Great Salt Lake. Got it. Um, that sounds like a really big job. Um, a lot it's of moving a- parts and for a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a really big job. I've been in this role for uh, about seven years. It'll be seven years seven years this week, actually, <laughs> my seven year anniversary. Um, but I've also been working for this organization for almost fifteen years in doing various things like climate work and um, intergovernmental coordination and policy development. So I I feel like. I grew up in this organization in some ways. Prior to that, I was the assistant city manager for the town of Alta, which is a very small city up in the Wasatch Mountains, which also happens to be one of the areas where Salt Lake City gets its drinking water supply, and um, and then worked as an environmental consultant for about 10 years um, based in the San Francisco Bay Area but then uh, traveling all over the country, working on hazardous materials sites, cleaning up super fun sites, basically. How did you kind of get involved in this kind of work? It sounds like there's like a water connection, an urban connection, and sort of like a trying to find solutions to climate problems connection. How did you kind of fall into this specific role? I think falling into it is a good way to describe (laughs) it. So, I mean, since I was very young, I knew I had a passion for the environment. Um, I remember as a child, you know, just observing nature, I could sit and watch ants travel back and forth, (laughs) carrying things to their um, anthills for a long time and grew up in an area where I was surrounded by wildness and nature. And, um, and so always had sort of a, I, I would say, a very soulful connection and passion towards the environment and knew that I wanted to do some kind of environmental work. You know, I went and got my undergraduate degree uh, from UC Santa Barbara in environmental studies and, you know, tried different things that would fit that passion. Water, I think, is one of our most important environmental issues. And so maybe all things led to here <laughs> in in some respects, all of the work that uh, I had been involved in. I'll say even when I was a teenager, I worked, I, I never had a restaurant job, um, which my two teenagers do right now, which is a great way to um, do part-time work when you're in high school. But my high school job was working for the California State Parks. <laughs> so, Oh, that's it. awesome. <laughs> that's where I work right now. I worked at Malibu Creek State Park um, awesome. and uh, Sycamore Canyon State Park. So I grew up in Malibu, California, you know, during the summers and on weekends, I was what they called a seasonal park aide. And so I did all kinds of jobs, whether sitting in the kiosk and, you know, handing out maps to people to uh, working with the Native Plant Society on um, various native plants issues or invasive species eradication. Um, so, so yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's a great coincidence. <laughs> so, I mean, so. growing up, I'm, I'm also from SoCal. Um, growing mm-hmm. up in SoCal, you must have been 
well, California itself too, very aware oh. that we have had, we have had a long history of water issues across yeah. the state. And, you know, what was that like growing up? How did you understand drought? How did you understand our water crisis in California at the time? So at the time, I'm probably dating myself, but I'm, you know, in my early fifties right now. And, you know, when I was, I was younger, I didn't really think that much about water and the water crisis. It wasn't until I, I went to um, college for my undergraduate degree and my first class with a great environmental thinker, uh, Roderick Nash, really just sort of opened my eyes to uh, a lot more of our interdependencies you know, as, as people and as a culture to the health of our environment. And, you know, I, that's where I became very concerned about climate change and very concerned about protecting land and water for their intrinsic values and also for the public health values that they provide for us. Um, I remember being very involved at that time in environmental ethics and, and actually ethics is one of those things, one of those topic areas that I'm passionate about today and will be teaching in my, in the uh, University of Utah Masters of Public Admi Administration program where I, I graduated with my master's degree, I'll be teaching an ethics course there. Um, when I was growing up, you know, just appreciating the natural environment and caring a lot about it and then learning more and more about all of the ways in which we as people interact with the natural environment. And so being this, in this current position where I have the responsibility for ensuring that drinking water is safe and clean for people and accessible and that wastewater is cleaned up to environmental standards uh, before it's released back into the, into the environment, those really align very well with, I think, <laughs> my history leading up to this, this role and my passions for the environment and for people and for public service. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's like a very clear trajectory um, there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because um, Salt Lake City has been in the news quite a bit lately. Um, and the Great Salt Lake has been quite in the news quite a bit lately. And, you know, as a Californian, especially as a Southern Californian, we are so used to drought. We're so, you know, it's just kind of part of how we operate. We, we grow up with water restrictions. We grow up with, you know, learning not to yeah. run your tap water and, you know, those little things that the public works have been, you know, tried to instill on us. Um, you know, but, but I don't think a lot of people tend to think, um, about Salt Lake City as having a drought problem and, and definitely not, um, the potential disappearance of the Great Salt Lake. So, you know, I, I wonder if you could kind of lay out the story of like, where, where does the, the, the problem begin for Salt Lake City? Where does the, the water problem kind of start? It's a, it's a great story. So, um, you know, Salt Lake City, it's it's still land that was that is um, the homeland for a number of our Native American Indian tribes. And in about 1847, uh, Mormon pioneers moved into Salt Lake City. They were uh, escaping persecution uh, in other areas and trying to find a place where they could practice their religion free from from being uh, persecuted. 
and they found Salt Lake City. You know, it's this beautiful valley. It's in this beautiful valley that's lined on either side to the east and to the west by striking ma- mountain ranges, and particularly the mountain ranges to the the east of Salt Lake City that border the east part of this valley. Um, captures a lot of snow. And that snow runs down in the springtime in these beautiful streams with clean water. It was an ideal place to settle at, at that time. And over, you know, the many, many decades since, the Salt Lake Valley has exploded in growth. You know, it's it's in Utah's a beautiful state. It's uh if you're if you like outdoor recreation, the outdoor environment, it is a very attractive place for people to move. It's an attractive people for place to raise families. Um, and so between, you know, just sort of population growth by it with residents of the valley, as well as people moving into the valley, um, we've grown quite a bit. And water supply planning uh, is one of the longstanding successes, I think, of the Salt Lake region. Uh Water planning was very, very carefully and deliberately done where water was acquired, water rights were acquired, water was diverted for drinking water and for agricultural purposes. And, um, you know, one of the one of the, the issues when this valley was uh, settled by Mormon pioneers, it was actually a really kind of uncharacteristically wet period in terms of precipitation. And so a lot of planning was conducted based on what we now know to be sort of an abnormal climate for this area. And really, really, we're in a uh, semi-arid region similar to Southern California. Um, and one of the things we have in this area is a, is, a, is a terminal lake that has no outlet. It survives by collecting the water that runs off in this watershed that we divert for our own purposes um, the other issues, you know, were similar to other Western states. Climate impacts us in a very um, significant way. So climate change, climate warming, you know, that increases uh, weather intensification, such as longer term droughts. Um, we're currently in a mega drought, even though we have a great snowpack this year, we're still in a mega drought. Um, and you know, this combination, I think, of population growth, climate change, you know, all of all of that means less water getting back to Great Salt Lake. And Great Salt Lake, I remember when I first started working in this position, you know, I was told that water that runs to Great Salt Lake is wasted water. <laughs> and, mm. um, you know, that sentiment has definitely changed and people don't say that anymore. But I think that kind of harkens back to sort of this um, sort of dismissal of, of Great Salt Lake in the past. So decisions regarding water management and land use and growth probably weren't made uh, with Great Salt Lake being a priority. And so now we're in our we find ourselves in this position where we've recognized the absolute importance of Great Salt Lake for wildlife. It's, it's an ecological gem. It uh, supports the globe's bird population. You know, it's, it's got an international um, benefit to wildlife. It is 
important to us in controlling our climate. Um, the reduction of Great Salt Lake means that dust are exposed that could be toxic to um, the health of our communities. And so now, now we've, I think, embraced not just Salt Lake City, but the state of Utah and, and others within this Great Salt Lake Basin have really embraced the um, ethic around water and the need to consider water from multiple viewpoints for environmental reasons, public health reasons, and our own survival. Um, so Great Salt Lake has become much more of an existential uh, crisis for us. The thinking previously of sort of water going into Great Salt Lake was wasted water. Um, I, I think that mindset shift is really important and really key to the story because, you know, we, we often as humans prioritize ourselves. And so the thinking of like, you know, water runoff going into the saline lake doesn't really do anything for us. You know, we can't drink that water. And so that's, that's wasted water. But as you kind of outlined, you know, it is a huge migra migratory stopover for birds across the globe. Mm -hmm. It's so important ecologically to that area. And, you know, I, I think, I think it's great that that shift is happening, that we're kind of prioritizing other species besides humans for this fight to mm -hmm. maintain and help Great Salt Lake thrive again. Um, how do you, how would you kind of characterize the local community's attitude around that concept and sort of the, 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 the idea that climate change is, is part of the impact there and that this is something that is really dire? Oh, I, I think the community is very concerned. Um, and, and by community, I mean, you know, the general public, of course, but also policymakers on the state and even federal, our federal delegation is concerned. Our state policymakers are concerned. Local elected officials are very concerned. And we're all also hearing from constituents who are very concerned. So, um, you know, there's, there, there are two, I think kind of two issues in how we express that concern. And one is, you know, feeling the sense of urgency. We've, we have a sense of urgency. We need to do something. We need to do something meaningful. And as you might know, major shifts in policy and shifts in thinking um, often take some time, you know, as as parties develop trust with each other um, who, who didn't normally see eye to eye or just uh, the um, sausage making of policy, <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> Regions that go along with that. So, um, so the community is expressing their concern and taking a lot of what what I think are pretty major steps. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it's going fast enough to address the urgency we feel. But I would say that there is this growing momentum, and and in the public policy space, I think once you start. Um, being comfortable with policy changes, maybe you start a little incrementally. Um, there's momentum that grows from that where larger policy shifts and decisions are are much more possible. And so I, I feel like the response has been really great 
especially based on the, the huge concern that the community has around this. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're people from around the country and around the world share concern. Um, there was a New York times article that came out uh, last year. I, I had a small part in that article and I received messages from people from across the globe asking how they could help or wishing us luck and offering their support, you know, so this is also something that's not just captured um, the state of Utah's, you know, interest and concern, but also it's captured um, people's uh, um, participation in this issue from across the country and across the world. Part of me feels like if there is a silver lining to any of this that, um, you know, I hate, I don't like that we're in this position, but we're, this is also a really great opportunity for us to be talking about sort of the, the interconnected impacts of how we interact with our environment. And, and climate change, I don't think climate change is the driver of Great Salt Lake. I think what the big driver of Great Salt Lake is that we're diverting more water for anthropogenic uses than is going back to Great Salt Lake. So we're in, we're in a deficit just based on diversions climate change is going to amplify that. Um, so, so we know that this isn't just, you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's important. That is also a global issue, but this is also what steps can we take in our own backyard to correct that deficit of water? What, what exactly is kind of the, the plan here? You know, when you are already in deficit and you have a growing population in the neighboring city, that's just ex- exponentially growing and growing. I mean, what what is what is the solution there? I mean, how do how do we kind of convince a huge what you said three hundred sixty five thousand people and growing that live in an area that doesn't really get as much water as can handle? Well, it's a it's a very complicated um, situation because my three hundred sixty five thousand customers on the water system only represent a very small portion of diversions into Great Salt Lake. So in the Great Salt Lake Basin, uh, we have um, lots of cities, we have counties, we have a lot of agriculture um, that spans over three states and multiple counties. (laughs) So the geographic area is very large. In that whole entire Great Salt Lake Basin, it's estimated that uh, 9% of the diversions are municipal. So people eating, drinking water and watering their gardens, that's 9%. The remainder of about, I would say about 70 to 80% of diversions is agriculture. And um, so on my system, there's, we don't have agriculture. We're pretty much a wall-to-wall city now. There used to be agriculture in the past, but not anymore. Um, But there are other areas where agriculture is the primary um, use of water in the Great Salt Lake Basin. And so the plan has to include diverting less water away from the lake from all of these different uses. And I I think one of the reasons why that's so complicated is it means that societally and culturally, we have some hard decisions to make. And, you know, some balancing of our lifestyle, quality of life, Mm -hmm. um, the economic drivers, 
how we integrate land use and water. Those are all topics that are on the table. One thing that's also on the table now is, uh, do we need to set a target elevation for Great Salt Lake? Um, and that was actually put forward. We just finished with our state legislative session. That concept was put forward this year, and it wasn't passed as a resolution, but I think we're going to be talking about it pretty seriously coming up. So so the plan forward, I think, is it's collective action, and it's a series of policies and initiatives and hard conversations around not only how we grow, but but also how we use water um, in the current sense. Um, why do you think that legislation wasn't passed? Was it there just wasn't an appetite for that kind of stringent of restrictions or? I think um, a, a lot of times in Utah, water legislation gets vetted prior to the 45 day legislative session because water policy can be like a game of whack-a-mole where you try to solve one problem and another one pops up that you didn't anticipate mm-hmm. and it has so many stakeholders. And so the policymaking process is, um, it, it requires us to say, okay, what action do we want to do? Why, what, what problem are we trying to solve? What action, what, what are the alternatives that we have to solve the problem? And then what are the consequences that are unintended? And I think what happened with that legislation um, is that there, there wasn't a clear consensus of what that unintended consequence would be and mm-hmm. whether, whether it would have water rights or legal ramifications. Um, and, and so there are some important questions in there that need to be studied so that if we do establish a lake level target, we have good science and good policy behind it. Um, one of the things that I'm always really concerned about um, on, on sweeping water policy is that we need to make sure that we are applying a lens of economic and environmental justice. And so if we're, if we're putting forward policy that has, for instance, a high cost or a high potential cost, um, that we don't know how we're going to fund it, um, then we want to we make sure that we're not burdening disproportionately vulnerable populations in our community. I'm not saying that a Great Salt Lake level would do that, but I think we just haven't had a chance yet to really investigate um, the impacts of that. Um, you know, you've, you mentioned that you've been in this position for, for quite a while and, and lived in that area. Anecdotally, how have you seen Great Salt Lake change? Have you noticed kind of year to year, you know, changes, Mm -hmm. things that have been concerning to you? Yeah, well, I'll go back to, you know, so I'm I'm going to go back to 1983 because we're having a, a snowpack this year, similar to 1983. And in 1983, we had more water in the lake than we knew what to do with. And hmm. there was famously a um, pump built to uh, reduce flooding risks. Um, so that's in, in ecological time. That's a really short time ago. And that's in the community's memory. But, you know, I've lived in Salt Lake for gosh, 21 years now. And yes, the the lake has been on a decline in terms of lake levels. We've also noted that from a climate perspective, our temperatures have been increasing, particularly um, wintertime 
uh, low temperatures, which affects snowpack, which then affects water resources. But I've also noticed just as our climate's warming and the lake is declining, <laughs> that our population is growing like crazy, especially over the last few years where didn't matter where you were in Salt Lake City, but there was a new apartment complex going up. <laughs> um, and uh, and so it, it's kind of, um, it feels a little bit odd where, you know, we're, we're talking about a declining lake or, or experiencing a declining lake as we are just growing so quickly and so much. And so those are the things that I've just sort of anecdotally noticed and, and really have had the thought that we've got to balance these things. We, we need to be really smart and deliberate about this before we find ourselves in a position that um, we can't get out of. We'll be right back. really interested in this story because it reminds me so much of Owens Valley in California and the diversion of water to Los Angeles. And Mm -hmm. so kind of to summarize the story with Owens Valley, um, you know, it's a pretty rural community. um, But people and and myself, before I kind of learned about the story, I just pegged Mm -hmm. it for another desert town. But Owens Lake used to be such a lush (laughs) and green destination um, for the indigenous community there, for wildlife, for all kinds of birds. It was just this huge, hugely, hugely important and green place. And when you drive Mm -hmm. on the 395 now, it just looks like desert and it looks like it's been desert, you know, in memoriam, basically. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, with with that, you have Owens Valley, which is and the kind of neighboring towns a lot smaller scale than Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. right? You've got kind of this rural community, but they're experiencing the same. It's kind of almost like a like a like a jump in time for what potentially Salt Lake City could be facing, and and wow. that is lots of dust, lots of toxic lake bed heavy metals being aerosolized. Mm-hmm. Um, you have increased salinity of the lake. So the brine shrimp that live there are not doing so well. And so there's not as much food for the birds that are migrating. Right. So it just creates this huge cluster of problems. Um, and, you know, with, with Salt Lake City, you have this huge community. And so, you know, if, if, if the things that happen in Owens Valley and Owens Lake happen to Salt Lake City, it's kind of unfathomable what what that will do to the local community and, you know, its economy, not to mention the public health side, but, you know, I'm sure you've been thinking about this too. So maybe we could just like peek into the, into your mind on this topic and how, you know, are you feeling anxiety that this is a potential future for Salt Lake city? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if we did nothing, if we took no action and refused to recognize the situation that we find ourselves in, that is that would be a huge fear that you know we would see very significant impacts to our community and as i said earlier kind of existential <laughs> impacts you know we have uh, as a community looked at owens lake and mono lake examples um both of those related to um los angeles and growth and water diversions in southern california a couple of differences there where 
you know, you basically had had one entity that was responsible for diverting water to, to provide for this growth. And some things have been put in place, to, like establishing, for instance, Ramona Lake, a lake level that I think, while very, very complicated in of itself, didn't have as many stakeholders as we have on Great Salt Lake. And mm-hmm. it's also a smaller water body. And so, yeah, I, I think I think that is a scary, it's a scary thought. It definitely is a scary thought to think that we could be in a position like that. Do I think we're headed down that road? I, I think we're, I think we are trying to turn that ship around. And the question is, are we doing it fast enough and effectively enough? And that's where I think, you know, our constituents and our elected leaders are really making a difference. Um, our constituents holding everybody accountable and our elected leaders responding and trying to develop good policy um, in a relatively short time frame. And the the mention of all those stakeholders, like I don't envy mm-hmm. <laughs> figuring that all out. That sounds very complicated. Like a lot of cooks in the kitchen trying to make decisions that feel like they have the best solution to the problem. Um, you know, and you kind of, you mentioned that most of that diversion is going to agriculture. Um, and, you know, I, I often get boggled by the sort of individual action that can make any kind of impact. Do you feel like individual action in this instance can make a difference? And what can people do if, yeah. if you do feel like that makes a dent? I I wholeheartedly feel like individual action makes a difference because it it has to be a collective. And, you know, one of the things that I think we need to be really careful of is playing the blame game, you know, cities blaming agriculture or residents blaming agriculture and using that as an excuse that their actions don't don't make a difference. And I kind of liken it to the, the climate change conversation, too, where you know, the, the problem appears so large that people are worried that they won't individually make a difference or that if even if they do sacrifice something important to them to, to help, that um, it, it will be for naught because some of the larger players in the room aren't doing anything. I think I think we constantly have to be talking about individual action and collective action you know, if, if Salt Lake City and its residents don't step up to the plate and take measures that causes some discomfort, maybe, or um, or that just are, if we, if we didn't take measures, the agricultural community would look to us and say, well, why should we do something? Mm-hmm. You know, if cities aren't going to, you're going to continue to grow your city in the urban area. The agricultural community, we have a way of life. We provide an important public service, too. You know, so it, it. I think what I'm trying to say is, we have to have less divides and more personal commitment um, and an ethic towards towards water, and develop our policies and actions and initiatives with everybody in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of our listeners are environmental minded, and so mm-hmm. I think they kind of have a good handle on 
how climate change works and how you can have one good year, one really wet year, one really heavy snow year, but that doesn't solve all your problems. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that, you know, having a really heavy snowpack this year in the area isn't the, the, the answer to the extreme drought facing this area. And I think you mentioned 1983, it was that there was kind of a similar situation. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, this snowpack this year is going to be great for the lake. Um, we, we will get runoff that, and I think, I think the lake level has risen another foot and a half even before runoff started this, this winter, which is great news. It still has, you know, a lot, a lot more to go. Um, over the last two years, we've conserved almost 3 billion gallons of water just in Salt Lake city each year. And what I would, what I would caution people that even though our water supply this year looks good, we still need to do that kind of that same level of conservation. And one good snowpack year might be good for one water year, but if we enter into another multi-year drought like we just have been in, um, this would just be sort of a blip on the radar in terms of water resources. Um, so this really good water year, we need to make the most of it for Great Salt Lake. And um, we need to, to test ourselves to make sure that uh, uh, more water gets to, the great, to Great Salt Lake in this, in this year. What is the infrastructure like for excess gallons, the gallons of water that you've been able to um, save and store up? Um, mm -hmm. Is that just preventing it from getting diverted to these areas? Is that infrastructure actually doing something to um, water to make it uh, potable or drinkable for mm -hmm. people? What, what does that actually look like? Uh, well, the the conserved you're asking about the conserved water, the three billion gallons yes. each year. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what that for Salt Lake City, what that means is we didn't divert that water from Great Salt Lake when we saved it. So, so we conserved all this water in our system because we're in the Great Salt Lake watershed. That water then just basically runs to Great Salt Lake via the Jordan River. So. So that that that's essentially so there really isn't infrastructure involved in that. It's natural infrastructure, really. It's um, streams from the sub watersheds hitting the Jordan River to Great Salt Lake, which is exactly what you'd want, you know, um, because <laughs> all all of those waterways also serve important ecological purposes uh, too, not just as tributaries to the Great Salt Lake, but on their own as well. Um, so so that. That's where that infrastructure is. Other communities, the infrastructure might look different. You know, I think because Salt Lake City diverts directly from streams into water treatment plants that goes into the distribution system, it's much more straightforward. But other systems might uh, not be quite as straightforward as ours. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process for those other communities? Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, um, communities may use more groundwater than surface water. And it's a little bit unknown how groundwater interacts with Great Salt Lake in this basin. Um, communities may also rely more on water storage. Um, so rather than directly diverting water from a stream into a water treatment plant, they're diverting water into a large reservoir and then treating that water. Um, so the and, and the water going into those reservoirs might be coming from outside of the Salt Lake Basin, you know, for instance, from tributaries to the Colorado River, which 
um, is having its own moment right now in terms mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Um, allocations and conflict. So, um, so sometimes it can be just very complicated and you add a layer of um, water rights and, you know, some communities directly hold water rights in these streams or lakes or groundwater. And some communities might rely on federally held water rights that are part of federal water projects. And the the process for how those water rights are accounted for are very different um, in, in that regard. And so, you know, if that conserved water can be committed in a more permanent or legal sense to Great Salt Lake, the processes would be different. So I think you have to think about it in terms of sort of the the natural infrastructure, um, the built infrastructure, and then the the legal framework that um, intersects all of those. We've talked a lot about all the problems facing Great Salt Lake Mm -hmm. and local communities. Out of like one out of 10, one being everything's fine, 10 being, oh my gosh, everything's on fire. How would mm-hmm. you rate the the status of Salt Lake City's water crisis and Great Salt Lake and its ability? You know, I, I think you sound like you have a lot of optimism that you can turn this ship around and make it, you know, a decisive impact and, you know, change the course of things from happening like they did in Owens Valley and Owens Lake. Um, so, you know, one out of 10, where would you put this problem and how would you rate it? I would rate it squarely in the middle right now. Um, okay. as, as you said, I have a lot of optimism, um, but I also, you know, I, I worry about fatigue around around this or loss of momentum. Uh, this As happy as I am for this water year, for so many reasons, I am also a little worried about that it may make the situation seem less dire than it is, and therefore we have less participation. Um, so I, I, w- I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic. We have to keep monitoring things. We have to keep momentum going. So that's why I'm like right in the middle there. <laughs> um, I, can I go back to your infrastructure question just really of quick? Course, I forgot yeah. to mention something important, important to Salt Lake City um, anyway. So I mentioned earlier that we're also the the sanitary sewer provider for the city, which means that we collect um, all the sewage and in pipes and those pipes are make it to our um, sewer treatment plant that then treats to Clean Water Act standards before discharging the treated water. The treated water that we discharge from our sewer treatment plant actually ends up in Great Salt Lake. And um, in our long-term water supply and demand planning, Salt Lake City has always uh, had on its plan that we would reuse that treated wastewater effluent um, for municipal purposes, that, that that was going to be a way that we meet demands, increase our supply and meet future demands in a growing population. And in a lot of Western communities, that wastewater reuse is a that's a really important um, thing to do um, in order to take stress off the system. But in our case, probably the most beneficial use of our treated wastewater is to continue to flow into Great Salt Lake and not be diverted out of Great Salt Lake. And um, and so that's an example of another kind of infrastructure and conveyance and shepherding decision point that we have to make as a community 
in Salt Lake City's case, we are working to dedicate the water rights associated with that wastewater effluent to Great Salt Lake. It would be the first time in this in the state of Utah where a public entity uh, committed treated wastewater rights associated with treated wastewater to Great Salt Lake. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a big deal. And I think that will, when I mentioned that there's so many layers of of this in terms of infrastructure and the legal framework, that's going to be a really good learning experience, not just for Salt Lake City, but for the entire community in terms of how do you, how do you actually do that? <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's complex, you know, and not only how you, how can you do that, but is it effective? And so one of the things when it, comes to action and infrastructure and conveyance and conservation and policy is that if we don't roll up our sleeves and just start trying things, then we might always be in this state of fear of, you know, well, we could do this, but then we'd have all these impacts. (laughs) And sometimes you just need to take a leap of faith and say, we're going to try this and it's not going to be the end of the world if it doesn't work. But if we don't try, we won't know. Yeah. And I get that. I I think that's got to be frustrating too, because of sort of the time scale that we're thinking of, there is so much urgency, but also Mm -hmm. that these solutions will take time to implement and take time to see the value of, you know, those changes. And so, you know, you mentioned that the fatigue of folks thinking that we're kind of out of the woods with this good wet year that we're having. Um, Mm -hmm. But do you think that throwing anything at the wall and seeing if it sticks approach. Um, You know, I guess, how do you communicate with the community that like some of these things are going to take time. And if you're not seeing changes immediately, that doesn't mean that they're not working. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. And during the pandemic, um, we didn't have a roadmap (laughs) really, you know, as a, as a city or a state or a larger community, there was no real good roadmap of how to deal with all of the, things that happened that the pandemic caused, you know, the economic disruption, the social disruptions, everything else. And, and one of the things as, as a city leader during that time, one of the things that struck me is um, we have to give ourselves permission to try and fail and then try again. Mm -hmm. If we, if we were always just striving to succeed every time we changed a policy or tried a new action during during the pandemic time, um, then we probably would have been paralyzed. We wouldn't have, wouldn't have taken any actions. And so this feels a little bit similar to me where, and similar in a lot of ways, because as we talked before, you know, during the pandemic, it required collective action in order to make a, a difference. In the water crisis, it still requires collective action to make a difference do we have a roadmap to deal with all of the twists and turns and intrigue that comes with a, a very complicated water crisis? No. There's, and is there one single solution? No. There's like a, a lot of different solutions that we need to weave together. And some, some we're going to try and we're going to find out that it's not the right approach and we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and try again. And I guess what I would say is that the, the other complicating factor in that is we kind of live in a society where the, the civil discourse is rough at times and, mm-hmm. and that there doesn't seem to be um, a lot of patience or flexibility when a government or 
or someone else tries to innovate to solve a problem and, and fails. And, you know, so sometimes it can make people gun shy to, to try, but Mm -hmm. I think, I think we need as a community, we need to all be there together. We need to, we need to kind of give ourselves permission to try new things, maybe, maybe not have them be successful. Maybe they will be successful, but let's, let's just keep moving and keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just to kind of wrap up a little bit here, um, you know, with this boom in population growth for the area, are you kind of of the mind to caution people from moving to the area? I mean, even with all of these solutions, it seems like maybe we can conserve enough water to get us out of the red zone, but that still doesn't account for the increase in people that we're going to add to that. So it just feels like we're always going to be playing catch up in this regard. So is, is one of the solutions to kind of let folks know, Hey, if you want to move here, you're going to be dealing with insane water issues or, Hey, maybe don't move here right now. This isn't really the time that the city can support you. You know, how do you feel about kind of that conversation? It's a very uncomfortable conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't, this isn't unique to, to Salt Lake City. This is, I mean, this is a conversation that could be applied to California, to Arizona, to, to other areas, or, or even in areas that are water rich areas that have their own perhaps climate fueled issues, um, such as increased hurricanes and stuff like that. So I guess, I guess what I would say is, I would never, I would never say that people shouldn't move here or shouldn't live here. Um, it's, it's an amazing place to be. Um, but I, I do think that we need to be very deliberate as a community about land, the integration of land use and water. So I'll give you an example, uh, in Salt Lake city where, uh, the state established a new inland port in a area that was previously undeveloped. And there are, various industries that are attracted to the land area here. Um, And Salt Lake City established an ordinance putting a cap on like, if you're an industry coming in here, you can't use a certain amount uh, above a certain amount of water. And the thinking behind that is a, if we have that cap based on good science and planning, it will um, encourage people to innovate in making much more water, having much, much more water efficient industry, or, you know, we've, we've done the calculus where we want, we want industry that supports our economy, that supports our, our community, that offers good jobs and good benefits to our community. Um, but we're going to balance that, you know, we don't want the, the environmental costs. So, so we're, we're trying to hit, you know, two very important things for us. So I would say that, you know, kind of directly in answer to your question that we would invite people to to locate here, but we want to make sure that the things that we do are very deliberate and that Great Salt Lake is sort of that North Star for us um, in protecting. In, <laughs> say, 50 years, are you optimistic that Great Salt Lake will still be there? Do you see a future for this lake? I do. I really do. I, I am optimistic. Um, I think I think Great Salt Lake is something that is 
now seen to be sort of the, the fabric of our community. We're also in, I think, our Indigenous population is starting to become more involved in our work too. But I, I think that um, I think that we have the ability and we have the uh, passion and innovation to make sure that the lake persists. The one caveat I'll put there is um, <laughs> that I, I do I do really think that. Um, you know, we're, we are going to do what we need to do in terms of diversions with, to, that affect Great Salt Lake and that our, our human interaction. But this does bring the broader question of climate change and that we do need global action for climate change because as, as we have a warming world, it's going to make it more difficult for us. Laura, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciated this conversation and your candor. I don't envy your position. It sounds very complicated, but I'm glad that somebody like you is kind of at the helm of this problem. And I'm really excited to see the solutions that you and your community come up with. Thank you. Well, let's keep in touch about that. I would, I would love to hear more and um, you have a great podcast. So uh, thanks for having <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll do like a check-in episode to see, uh, see how Great Salt Lake is doing in a, a year or so. That would be fantastic. <laughs> All right. So this is the portion of our conversation where I've asked you guys to find interesting news articles and Hannah I'm like stoked for yours because go ahead and introduce because I'm getting out of myself um so my um my subject that I've just become really obsessed and fascinated by is the orcas that are um ramming sailboats off of the coast of Spain um it basically like the memes for starters like if anybody is a fan of memes they would have surely seen something come out of this that is just like whether it's against jeff bezos new boat whatever it is it's just like the the thing that memes the thing that meme dreams are kind of made out of um but then on top of that it kind of like scientists just don't have a clue what's going on um so it's this big scientific question mark that we just have no idea um yeah like we have no idea why it's happening like I've worked with whales for years and people are kind of like anthrop- massively anthropomorphizing the situation but mm-hmm. it could also actually be that mm-hmm. the whales are just really angry mm-hmm. um I mean they're orcas not whales should point out but um like are the way are, are the orcas really really angry has there been a ship strike that the that the matriarch is responding to she's teaching the rest of the pod to ram boats and you've got mothers teaching their babies to ram boats um people are terrified of taking out their super yachts um which, which... in my opinion they should be anyway <laughs> are we mad about that <laughs> yeah i think you know i i think that there is you know especially when you work in science right it's like there's this stigma attached with anthropomorphizing behaviors animal behaviors Mm -hmm. that you observe but i think to like a certain extent that's bs because like 
we have no other way of like relating to like emotional reactions and like you know like we can learn even though for many many species we can't like uh translate you know like we can't look at that animal and understand like how it's expressing its emotion um Mm -hmm. but like we can learn that for some animals right and it's like uh i i think i don't know I, i i like the more consistently like the more we learn about um the intelligence of other animal species non-human animals like the more we understand how similar they are to humans and also like the more you know like the more intelligent we learn that they truly are and the less unique we learn you know like we're learning that humans are less and less unique on an intelligence level like the more Mm -hmm. we learn about the intelligence of other species so like Mm -hmm. i think those orcas know more than probably most people give them credit right like, I think they probably know that there's a, a big looming threat to their existence mm-hmm. and their mm-hmm. ecosystem and the health of their ecosystem. They're yeah. seeing this. You know what I mean? Like, I do yeah. not think it is that far of a leap to, like, not just to talk about, like, oh, an individual boat strike. Like, that makes total sense, right? And mm-hmm. surely that's a part of it. But, like, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's a much deeper understanding of the broader situation going on within certain orca communities and like that's just and you know the way that one community has decided to outwardly express Mm -hmm. their resistance to the human species absolutely and you know they're such a family oriented species too and so i hope this becomes generational knowledge too (laughs) right um but that you're right matt like even just you take it at face value it's like really scary predator that's hurting me and my family attack predator to stave off danger. Like that makes sense (laughs) even Mm -hmm. like in that sense. So, um, yeah, I hope we, you know, I, I do kind of hope we get to the bottom of it, but if nothing else, uh, you know, I'm team Orca. So, I mean, there's (laughs) there's definitely a future episode of Earth Humans in in there, right? For sure. Hannah's probably already doing the research. <laughs> I'm sure. I was like, keep us appraised on developments. <laughs> oh, 100%. Definitely. I think the only the only thing that kind of concerns me about the whole thing is that there was the, um, there was the walrus last year. And I don't mm. know if you guys heard about the walrus that got euthanized in, in Norway. And I think like there would be, I, I just, it concerns me on behalf of the orcas for their, yeah, for whether they'll, they'll be okay. And like, I hope that no harm comes to them, whether it's like hurting themselves from, from attacking the boats or people, people yeah. harming them. Hannah, do you want to kind of introduce us to the next episode on deck? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I, I like I kind of work in science. I'm the science communicator, and I'm also a really creative person. Um, but my outlet is science, <laughs> um, which is, sounds a bit ridiculous, um, but uh, that's the creative medium that I that I ended up choosing, um, and I love like obviously with with the world kind of having a lot of doom and gloom something that gives me a lot of joy and inspiration are other science communicators especially ones that are just like um hilarious and 
are just doing these amazing um just amazing amazing things to um help people understand about um not only science but also about the um issues that are facing the the planet and i follow a an eco rapper called um she used to be called hilla the killer she's now called hilla the earth um on instagram and i just remember finding her page and um the first thing i saw was basically her dressed as an earth cheerleader um twerking against a giant mushroom um and it just being this like really well well done like it wasn't in any way like it just like some some attempts at this that i've kind of seen historically i remember being at primary school and there being like people that came in dressed in costumes to kind of teach you about various different things but hers is just done so well and she's such an amazing like fun person and so I just wanted I like wanted to interview her so I reached out and I just had the most incredible conversation with her like she was such a a great person um and yeah I'm really excited to share that and also for anyone that hasn't heard her music before to share that with with people um as well so yeah. I'm really, I'm just really glad that I live on planet Earth during the time of eco rap. Like, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, as, ma- as many things are as wrong as the time that we exist today, it's like we have eco rap, so maybe everything's yeah. gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I know Hannah's just got her like bag in her hand. She's ready to <laughs> She's like, bolt Come on, for the are door. we over yet? I'm ready. <laughs> I actually, I think our motorbikes just arrived, so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, thanks all for tuning in. Um, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Earth Demons podcast. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. The show is hosted and produced by Hannah Mulvaney, Matt Podolsky, and me, Serena Simons. Music for this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at earthtohumanspod.com for a full list of credits, as well as photos and artwork for today's episode.